0: sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally.
1: Hello, my radical centrists. It is the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and we are at episode Nine zero of you don't have to yell. That's ninety. Now, remember the recent episode we had with Michael Miller, where I was more or less convinced getting rid of the filibuster made sense. Well, not so much after this episode. I spoke with Stephen S. Smith, professor of political science at Washington University. And he is one of the leading scholars on congressional politics. And he explains in this episode how the current mission of the U.S. Senate has moved from a body insulated entirely from the popular vote to one that's swayed a little less by swings in public opinion than the House. And despite the fact obstruction is now the norm in the Senate, he makes a pretty compelling case for why we shouldn't throw away tools that empower the minority altogether. I'll be back at the end to offer my final thoughts on the subject. In our recent episode with Michael Miller, uh, we were discussing the US Senate and the use of the filibuster. And I was very interested in exploring this concept further and seeing how this stood up to history. So that's why I am very excited to have our guest today, Stephen S. Smith, distinguished professor of social science And professor of political science at Washington University. He is one of the foremost scholars on congressional politics. And thank you very much for joining me, Stephen.
0: Great to be with you, Dan.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I guess to kick things off, you know, there's an an analogy or, or, or a phrase used by George Washington to describe the Senate. And he described it as sort of the cooling saucer for legislation. And I think from the layperson's perspective nowadays, it seems like the Senate is more of a place where legislation goes in and evaporates. Um, how, how true is that perspective?
0: Well, Washington's perspective is no longer the perspective that uh, we share. Uh, the, the image of the Senate uh, has changed. Uh, our expectations about the Senate have changed. <clears throat> Washington's view is simply out of date. <clears throat> Excuse me, and it's not, and it's simply not very relevant. Mm-hmm. What Washington had in mind was that the House of Representatives is the only directly or popularly elected branch of the federal government mm-hmm. uh, would initiate most legislation. That's where a lot of the energy from the from the people would would come from. Uh, the House would generally act first. It wasn't required to, uh, except on uh, tax matters, mm-hmm. uh, but it would. And in fact, it did. Uh, for about a quarter century uh, after 1789, the House generally acted first. And then the Senate acted in accordance with Washington's anticipation mm-hmm. that uh, it would take up the House passed bill and, and and give it a second thought. And so that's the sentiment behind Washington's thinking. Now, of course, the Senate was not directly elected. It was elected by state legislatures, uh, and it was supposed to be a somewhat more, well, there's no other way to put it, elite body of Mm -hmm. more experienced, um, uh, older politicians. The age requirement for the Senate is five years above the House, uh, and so the Senate was supposed to be the place where they give it a, a, a careful second thought on any new piece of legislation. But, you know, our thinking about the Senate has has that, that old, old time thinking about the Senate really is no longer relevant. Uh, we adopted the 17th Amendment at the beginning of the 20th century to make the Senate popularly elected. Uh, we wanted to put it uh, the selection of senators back in the hands or into the hands of the people directly and out of the hands of state legislatures, where at the turn of the century there was a great deal of corruption. So uh, we now consider the Senate to be like the House with respect to how responsive to the public uh, it is. Now there are other features of the Constitution that that make the Senate different. Uh, Obviously, it has six-year terms, and not all senators are up for re-election every two years. They have staggered terms, so it's only one-third of the Senate that's up for re-election in any one federal election cycle. And that means that the turnover in the Senate is likely to be slower. Uh, If there's a change in public sentiment on an issue, it's likely to be registered in the Senate more slowly than it is in the House of Representatives, and those six-year terms give senators a little bit more uh, room to to breathe. Uh, They're not running for re-election all the time. We hope that that would breed, oh, greater wisdom, uh, a greater, uh, less concern for re-election and more concern for the national interest. But the truth of the matter is uh, we made them popularly elected. (laughs) And so the expectation that they're going to be very different than members of the House is just inaccurate. Um, So uh, we undid what Washington expectations were. The Senate has come to act um, first on, oh, roughly a third or 40% of legislation varying from Congress to Congress. Mm -hmm. And no one thinks that's uh, inappropriate. So the expectations have changed. And relying on expectations uh, of 1789, when the first Congress convened, um, is probably not the best way to think about the modern Congress.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting, and I don't think any, any something anyone of us has brought up on this uh, show before. Um, so, you know, if I'm hearing you correctly, the Senate was. You know one of those structures that was basically put in place originally to let's call it like buffer popular opinion in a way. Um, the whole idea of popularly elected uh, government or, or self-rule was really relatively new. And I guess when you when you look at the role the Senate played back then and the role it played now in terms of passage of legislation, was the Senate in its original form more likely to pass legislation or less likely? Uh, than, than the one we see today?
0: Well, the Senate didn't stand in the way of House passed legislation very often. Uh, there certainly were times uh, at the very start, but that became more and more important as the decades went by. By the time we got to the 1820s and 30s and 40s in the lead up to the Civil War, the Senate was the primary obstacle. Uh, to legislation passed by the House to limit the spread of slavery. Uh, And that's when in fact, the filibuster practice began to emerge is when Southern senators decided to prevent action on anti-slavery measures uh, by talking them to death, by preventing the Senate from coming to a vote on them. And by that time, the Senate uh, had never adopted a rule to limit debate Uh, But by that time they discovered, ah, we can exploit this uh, uh, feature of the Senate's rules uh, to our advantage. And uh, that's where the Senate's current tradition often cited, Really begins to emerge because those senators who are filibustering and defending their practice of filibustering by saying we don't have a rule limiting debate and the Senate's a different place than the House uh, in this respect. The minority gets to slow things down, um, even block things if we if they if it cares enough about an issue. That kind of rationale began to emerge decades after the first Congress uh, in the midst of the anti-slavery debates.
1: That so I guess that's that leads me to another question, which is you know one of the things that we almost hold sacred in this country, or we we kind of take for granted, is this concept of institutions that prevent the tyranny of the majority, so to speak. And it doesn't sound like that was ever built into uh, it built into Congress and its founding. It sounds like that's more of an invention that came from the slavery debate. am i am I hearing you correct
0: there? Well, there's a two-part answer, Dan. Uh, You're right about the Senate. Uh, That is, the filibuster practice was not anticipated by the founding fathers. And it was not a practice observed in the early uh, Congresses. Uh, The fact is, the the original Senate had just 26 members. Remember, 13 states, Uh, 13 colonies became 13 states, two senators per state, 26 senators. A very small body, it's like a small classroom of... Of senators. And they they and, and because they acted only after the House acted uh, most of the time, they were taking up one bill at a time. Uh, the burden on their time was not very great. And they could talk out an issue at great length without creating a backlog of other matters to consider. So the early Senate was, was a slow um Uh, Its meetings were held in in private, Uh, they could just carry out a conversation until everyone had said their piece and then vote. It really was not a very big issue. Now, the question of of, of checking um, majorities, of course, is built into the Constitution in a larger way. Uh, we have a bicameral Congress. So one house, and, and we elect the House and the Senate on uh, different cycles, six year and two year terms. Uh, only part of the Senate selected every two years. The original scheme was that they would even be selected by different audiences. One would have the constituency of the, of, of, of the general public and the other one would be representing state legislatures. And there would be a president selected by an electoral college, an electoral college of, of wise men uh, who would dis- determine who is most fit to be president. And of course that, that fell apart when states decided to dictate to their delegates to the electoral college, how to, how to vote. Uh, and that just completely fell apart. So the original scheme fell apart in so many ways <laughs> that to go back to the original scheme and pick out one element now, to justify current practice is, is um, you know, honestly, it's not fair. It's not fair to the founding fathers. They had put together a package of arrangements that they thought would buffer, as you say, um, government policymaking from the, from the winds of public opinion. They wanted wise choices, not quick, responsive choices. Mm-hmm. And they thought they had structured government to do that. But we have moved step by step to... Uh, to do away with that. We've we've made the president effectively popularly elected, at least state by state, uh, through the electoral college system mm-hmm. as it's now used, and the Senate popularly elected. So we did away with much of that. We yeah. still have a yeah. sort of a checks and balances yeah. system. It's likely that the president, the House and the Senate will not see uh, each issue exactly the same way. And so there'll be some tension and there'll be need for compromise. But we no longer are thinking that we need to buffer government from from public opinion. To the contrary, we've taken every step possible to make it more responsive to public opinion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I want to I want to touch on that. Um, because I, I, I think that what we tend to do is, as 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 lay people is really sort of have a reverence for the lore of the country's founding and a lore of the institutions. And to the point where we will overrule what might be practical. Um, and we might overrule maybe some of the flaws that become apparent. Do you feel like that sort of reverence might be misplaced? Because it sounds to me like from what you're saying, these institutions have constantly been changing and constantly been in development. And we shouldn't necessarily hold one particular practice. Uh, just because it's always been done that way am I correct there or am I off
0: base uh, no that's more or less correct but I would I would simply add that um, Americans demonstrated commitments to certain democratic or constitutional principles is limited mm-hmm. uh, our our use of the founders intent or early practice or the Uh, original text of the Constitution um, tends to be highly selective. Uh, (laughs) Whatever supports our current political interest, we point to some feature of tradition or the Constitution or early practice and say, we can't do it your way. We have to do it my way because tradition says so. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out you, you you point to that tradition very selectively when it suits your interests. Mm-hmm. And of course, the tradition is mixed. Uh, the framers themselves see the Constitution as a grand compromise of competing principles uh, that made sense at the time they were trying to settle on a Constitution and get it ratified by the states. Uh, but you know, that means that there are competing values uh, mm-hmm. represented in the Constitution. And we point to those values very selectively.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. This, this, I'm reminded of a conversation I had um, a couple of years back on this, this podcast with a, a constitutional scholar and we were talking about the Second Amendment. And we were talking about how <laughs> It, when you look at the the court cases that involved the second amendment most of them weren't overtly about guns or weren't overtly to get into regulation about guns they were more about you know regulation of interstate commerce or civil rights or things of that nature and and what i got out of that conversation was really that you know, in a lot of ways, government and our constitution almost serves as kind of the marriage counselor for a very large, diverse population and make sure that we have a fair place to resolve agreements. And, uh, and to your point, uh, very often the examples we cite or the aspects of that framework that we focus on generally are very, very, are very specific to the time we're in and and what we're arguing about effectively. Um, I want I to jump a, ahead a little bit, you know, because obviously we've talked a little bit about the founding. We've talked a little bit about the Civil War. You know, I was taking a look at the use of the filibuster in the 20th century, and there's a point where it pops up around World War I when there's this big debate uh, about whether the U.S. should be more involved in global conflicts or, or more isolationist. Then it goes back down, and then it pops up around the civil rights era and just, just skyrockets. And is there any historical explanation for that rise, or is it just people found it super useful in the Senate and they've just exploited it more and more since?
0: Uh, this, 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 yeah, you're right that it's a bit of a roller coaster ride with respect to the use of the filibuster. Uh, the late 19th century had quite a few filibusters. And uh, that that extended into the early, very early 20th century. Mm -hmm. At that time, there was no rule uh, at all uh, limiting debate. Mm -hmm. So a handful of senators could uh, hold the floor simply by taking turns uh, and uh, hold the floor indefinitely and prevent action on a measure. Mm -hmm. Uh, This uh, very famously happened uh, in 1890 and 91, when, Uh, Northern Republicans were seeking uh, to pass something called the elections bill, which would have authorized federal authorities uh, to enforce election law in the South. This was, of course, after um, a couple of decades of the adoption of Jim Crow laws uh, that effectively banned uh, uh, blacks from uh, participating in uh, elections and many poor whites, as it turns out. But uh, the target was blacks. And that was filibustered to death. Um, And it was the last major piece of civil rights legislation for for decades. Uh, We continued to suffer uh, with those Jim Crow laws, uh, as we all know, uh, well into the mid 20th century until we finally got the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, um, which which undid much of that. Uh, In the meantime, though, in the early 20th century, Uh, Lynchings uh, continued uh, apace in the South and Congress from time to time, um, uh, or at least members of Congress, wanted to pass anti-lynching legislation and that was effectively stymied by a filibuster or even the threat of a filibuster. Keep in mind that if you know your bill is going to die because it can't pass the Senate due to a minority filibuster, you might not even bother taking it up, you'll spend your time on other matters. And that's the general history.
1: I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I wanted to take a short break to share ways you can learn more about the electoral reform movement that is gaining steam in this country if the uptick in listeners to YDHDY is any indication. Now, first... As I've mentioned before, over the past few months, I've been working with an organization called Rank the Vote, and their goal is to bring ranked choice voting to every state in the union. And while there are so many ways we can reform government, ranked choice voting remains, in my opinion, the least drastic, most feasible, and most effective way to get the kind of diversity in American politics we need. And if you'd like to help, you can visit rankthevote.us to learn more. Second, I want to hear from you, so let me know what you think of this episode or others you've listened to, or just give me suggestions on topics and guests by visiting ydhty.com or hitting me up on social media. Twitter seems the place you like to talk, so feel free to grab me there. And to the folks I've chatted with before, you've been a huge help in the growth of the show. Thank you very much for all of your comments and suggestions, and I'd love to get more people in the conversation. Let us get back to the
0: episode. In 1917 was a turning point. In 1917, on another issue altogether, um, President Wilson had asked Congress to allow the U.S. merchant marine ships, commercial ships that were going across the North Atlantic to arm themselves, maybe with the help of the U.S. Navy, so they could fire back at German submarines uh, during the early stages of World War I. At that point, the United States was trying to avoid being dragged into that war, and uh, the uh, more isolationist forces that opposed any U.S. involvement uh, opposed Wilson's uh, request because they thought that arming uh, U.S. ships, even though they were just merchant ships uh, and allowing them to shoot back would eventually lead to even more problems for those merchant ships, deaths, uh, a battle, and we get dragged into a naval battle and into the war through that process. So 11 senators, back then the Senate had 96 members, 11 senators filibustered and killed the bill. This was seen as such an outrage that senators said, we've got to do something about this. And they eventually adopted the sometimes called the filibuster rule or the cloture rule, meaning the ability to close debate. At that time, they adopted a cloture threshold of two thirds so that if two thirds of senators voted in favor of closing the debate and getting a vote, they could do so. Uh, And that started this cloture process. This, and then in 1975, after going through the civil rights battles of the fifties and sixties, they reduced the threshold from two thirds to three fifths uh, Three fifths of all sen- uh, of all uh, uh, Senate seats filled. So, if all 100 seats are filled, that would take 60 votes, uh, down from 67 at two thirds, uh, to to make it a little bit easier to close debate and get on uh, to final action on a bill. So, the Senate's taken steps here, uh, but the civil rights. Uh, and issues of race are central to the history. Uh, the issue of course is, is um, of such vital importance, uh, it went to the foundations of American or of, uh, especially Southern society and eventually um, uh, even Northern racism, that it, it was an issue on which uh, senators were willing to filibuster. In fact, so important to Southern senators during the middle decades of the 20th century, that they would um, refuse to filibuster on other issues because they wanted to save their filibusters for civil rights. Why? Well, they wanted to minimize the chance that their colleagues would want to reform the practice and take away their ability to filibuster. So they would, they would narrow their target to civil rights, the issue they cared most about. And um, uh, eventually um, we got the civil rights, major civil rights acts of the 1960s and attitudes about civil rights began to change. The South began to to elect people to Congress and to the Senate who had a different attitude about civil rights. Future civil rights and voting rights uh, bills uh, were much easier to pass. Uh, And they began to use the filibuster for many, many other purposes. And so, in the last fifty years, we've just seen an escalation uh, in the use of obstructionism on the part of the minority uh, to get to, to block the majority and and to try to get its way. And that's why we're in the predicament we're in now is this great expansion of of, of obstructionism as a minority strategy.
1: Yeah, and is that is that reflective of some gr- huge disagreement on? On policy, so you know when, when you look at civil rights, for example, there were obviously a select group of people who wanted to derail that. Um, or when you look at uh, isolationism and in, in World War One, um, that was that was a a, a a principle people were looking to defend. And do you feel now is you know when you look at the use of the filibuster today, and you look at how much obstructionism exists in the Senate? is it reflective of true disagreement or is it reflective of maybe you know, a power struggle and, and a useful tool for the minority to keep the majority from getting anything done?
0: Well, it's been transformed from an issue by issue tactic to a general minority party strategy. Uh, and that's really occurred in just the last quarter century, um, really just the last 15 years. Uh, prior to that, I mentioned that the uh, threshold was reduced from two thirds to three fifths in 1975. Well, the, one of the reasons it was changed at that time was that there was a concern about the well. They used the term trivialization. They were making. They're using the filibuster for more, more and more trivial purposes. Well, they weren't entirely trivial. Uh, Some of them were civil rights related. Uh, For example, I was a doorman in the U.S. Senate as a college student um, when there was a filibuster on a bill um, sponsored by Northern liberals uh, to allow people to, to register to vote by postcard so that when you walked into the post office to pick up your mail, you could also pick up a postcard and drop it right in the in in the slot right there and uh, register to vote. Um, southerners uh, filibustered that, and it and at that time it never passed. Um, uh, the leader was uh, Alabama Senator Jim Allen, uh, who feared uh, that um, I think blacks and poor whites would find it easy to register to vote, and he'd find that it would be difficult, more difficult for people like him to get reelected. Hmm. Um, so is that a trivialization? It's not a major civil rights bill. It's a narrower election issue. Or how about, um, the SST, uh, in the early 1970s, there was a proposal for the U S government to to help subsidize the development of the supersonic transport. Uh, one of the planes that could fly faster than the speed of sound across Europe, uh, across the Atlantic to, Cut in half the time it took. Uh, And of course, we know that the Europeans were developing the Concorde at the same time. Uh, And uh, it it turns out that that was filibustered to death. So the United States never really got into the SST game. The Europeans did. So there were some people in the airlines business who were disappointed by that. Now, is that an issue on the scale of, of importance of the Voting Rights Act of 1965? probably not. Yeah. Uh, but so the, the point is, is that it became a, a tool for matters of more modest significance. And that began to spread really all across uh, the issue spectrum of issues. Um, but it was still, by, by today's standards, really quite modest. What happened, though, uh, in the last 20 years uh, was that the minority party and Honestly, the Senate Republicans took the lead in this, uh, realized that if they could make it difficult to, for the Senate to act on things, just slow things down, maybe maybe cloture could be invoked and they could move on to a vote on the bill. But the cloture process is a clunky one. Uh, you have to submit a petition of 17 senators' names. You can't vote on it for two days. Then you get Back in those days, 100 hours of debate. So that would take several days. So anytime someone decided to obstruct and you had to get cloture in order to move forward, you could really slow down the process. Now they've changed the post-cloture debate period now to what can be completed in two days. So that's helped. But if you do this over and over and over again, it will begin to look like the majority in the Senate can't get its work done. It will begin to look that like um, the, the majority really won't get to some high priority issues. <clears throat> It'll look like some spending bills just won't get passed by the start of the next fiscal year and there'll be a little crisis uh, that might involve shutting down the government because you don't have those bills passed yet. And in general, the minority thinks that if they can just simply make the majority look dysfunctional, uh, they win. And that has been the the strategy. Um, and of course the majority has not been sitting still for this, so they respond in kind. I mean, they say, if you're not gonna allow us get a final vote on the bill, then we're not gonna let you get votes on amendments, kind of a tit for tat thing. And until you allow us to actually get a final vote, we're not gonna allow those amendments. Well then the Senate, Senate suddenly isn't a place where they even debate and vote on amendments to a bill, let alone the bill itself. and we get this this um, minority obstructionism and this kind of majority restriction going back and forth back and forth. I once called that the Senate syndrome. they've they've reached their they've they've you know fully exploited their parliamentary privileges and the result is gridlock yeah and in fact government. When the defense of the filibuster always is, it forces bipartisan compromise because it allows the minority to say, you can't get a vote until you compromise with us. Well, it's now being used in a way that is not intended to produce compromise. It's intended simply to slow the process down and cause obstruction. That's why it's getting so much attention today.
1: Yeah. And so you know I have one one last question to cap this off then, which is you know, if you look at the the creation of the filibuster was an error. So for those who don't know it was a it was unintentionally created when they were cleaning up uh, Senate procedural rules and uh, and later became what we know today. Um, do you feel it would be a similar mistake to get rid of it? Or do you feel like that's the best path forward to get back to a functioning Senate?
0: Well, this is always uh, a difficult call because we do have two legitimate values that are in uh, tension with each other, majority rule and minority rights. We think in a democracy that these have to be balanced, that the majority cannot act in ways that violate basic minority rights. On the other hand, The minority rights cannot be so strong that the majority can never act. Um, Then we get nothing done. So how do you balance those? And uh, the argument that I accept right now is that a new balance has to be achieved. Um, I don't think the Senate right at this moment is capable of finding its way to a new balance because the partisanship is running so deep that it's just one... um, a uh, cannon volley against another back and forth, but no coming together to work out uh, the details of a new balance. One could imagine making it easier to get a vote by simple majority, um, say over a long period of time of debate, um, but yet protecting the minority's right to offer amendments in the meantime. You could You could find a new balance. But right now, uh, there's no interest in one side giving in uh, to the other. The minority in the current Senate has 50 votes. They they All they need is one vote from the other side and they can win. So why should they speed things up? Why should they allow the other side to speed things up with the simple majority? Maybe with the vice president casting the tie-breaking vote. They don't want to do that. They don't want to change the procedure. Um, uh, and, and, and so that's the bind. How do you rebalance that when when the minority stands in the way? In a sense, the filibuster stands in the way of reforming the filibuster practice. <laughs> and that is the situation the Senate has often been in. Now, in, in order to do it by brute force, something they call the nuclear option. Yeah, The nuclear option is simply making a, a point of order that we're going to ignore the written rule of the Senate and do something another way. That's what the nuclear option is. It's it's kind of a radical step. And then that point of order is backed up by a simple majority. And under the Senate's (laughs) rules, a simple majority can can enforce its will through a point of order. Now, it's a distasteful process because if if it succeeds, you've got a point of order that's accepted that has um, terms that are in direct contradiction of the plain meaning of a written rule of the Senate. (laughs) And now this has been used a couple of times uh, to force simple majority cloture, not super majority, 60 vote cloture, but simple majority cloture on all nominations, not on regular legislation, but on presidential nominations to executive positions like secretary of defense Mm -hmm. uh, or to the Supreme court. Yeah, uh, But on regular legislation, we still have the 60 vote threshold. What the Democrats are debating is whether or not they should use the nuclear option to impose a simple majority uh, standard uh, for regular legislation too, as has already been done for nominations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but in order for that to succeed, they need a majority. And we know that at least a couple of senators Senator Manchin from West Virginia, Senator Cinema from Arizona have said that they would not support that. And in mm. a 50/50 Senate, losing two of those Democrats means that Democratic leadership does not have a majority for, for using the nuclear option. Mm. Can those two Democrats be persuaded in the other direction in making it a 50/50 vote, allowing the vice president to break the tie in favor of the a Democrats' position? Um, that's unclear. And the current thinking is that it may never happen, but if it happens, it's only going to be when something comes up. Oh, I don't know. It might be an infrastructure bill or, um, uh, uh, an elections reform bill that's Mm -hmm. considered to be so vital to the country's interest that, uh, mansion and cinema can be persuaded to change their minds. That's Mm. where things stand.
1: Got it. Got it. So it sounds like the question of whether it's a good idea or not is kind of moot because it's not going to happen anytime soon, anyway. Am I am I hearing you correct?
0: I uh, well, yeah. I uh, Mansion had a uh, an op ed in the Washington Post this past mm-hmm. week saying under no uh, under no circumstances will I budge on this issue. So he's staked out a very very public uh, position. He he thinks even as a majority party Democrat that protecting the minority's right to filibuster is important. Of course, he's a very moderate, uh, maybe the most moderate uh, Democrat, and he's sitting right there in the middle, and he likes the bargaining leverage that he has with both sides. Yeah. Um, uh, And now, of course, he would still have that. You still need a majority to pass legislation in the House. You'd still probably need his vote, but he's not even willing to go there. Is this just a bargaining position on his part as he's trying to deal with his leadership on this procedural matter? Uh, I can't read his mind. Uh, And Democrats are hoping that he'll eventually be persuaded by the importance of the legislation that's being blocked by a filibuster. Uh, And uh, so far it's too easy to tell, Uh, too early to tell, but the more easy to pass legislation has already been considered. And of course they've considered the most important matters Uh, like the COVID relief bill under a special procedure called reconciliation Mm -hmm. that does not allow a filibuster. And it looks like they'll take up the infrastructure bill that way too. Yeah. And honestly, it's a shame because it means that there's a very limited opportunity to offer amendments. The debate is very limited. uh, And the Republican contribution, the minority party contribution is limited. Yeah. Um, They would... What the Senate really needs is something like its own internal constitutional convention at which they seek to change their rules uh, and and achieve a new balance between majority rule and minority rights. Yeah. I don't see how they get there from here, at least not yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, I'm, I'm hearing two things from you here. I'm getting two things out of this conversation, which is, um, number one, the polarized climate is or the, the, the polarized nature of American politics is bigger than any one procedural hurdle that might keep uh, legislation from being passed. Um, and number two, you know, getting rid of the filibuster is almost too simple of a solution or too simplistic for a bigger problem. And the better uh, move would be to uh, take a look at reforming Senate procedure in a way that doesn't entirely do away with uh, some strength in the minority um but at the same time allows the senate to actually pass legislation as opposed to allowing obstructionism to to really take hold am i am i hearing
0: you right yeah um at the risk of getting a little more deep into the weeds i'll get deep <laughs> let me add one more consideration
1: uh-huh
0: when the senate went, when the senate went nuclear so to speak uh, to do away with supermajority cloture on nominations,
1: yeah.
0: it created a precedent that maybe anything in the Senate's rules could be imposed by the nuclear option, any change.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And <clears throat> th- there's an open question uh, uh, about whether or not, once having done that, once having let the cows out of the barn, uh, it's, it's gonna be possible to set up any new understanding about basic ba- the basic balance between minority uh, rights and majority rule, because it implies that the majority can do what it wants whenever it wants. End of story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and why would the majority then, you know, pretend to to guarantee some minority rights? And why would the minority trust that guarantee if the mm-hmm. nuclear option can be used and some fu- in some future Congress that that new Senate majority can just do what it wants with Mm. respect to that, that rule. So that, that is um, really the shame of what's transpired uh, in the last two decades. Now we could blame the Democrats for first using the nuclear option uh, on nominations back in 2013 when they were in the majority. Yeah. But the fact is there was a, what most people would think is a genuine abuse of the filibuster by the Republican minority in the years leading up to that. Uh, uh, And uh, if you went back and reviewed the events of 2013, you'd see that uh, this all purpose um, uh, obstructionism by the, by the Republicans really was a serious problem. And they were given plenty of warning that unless they gave way, at least some Uh, that this approach would be used. And eventually Harry Reid, the Democratic leader in 2013, uh, just proceeded and said, we've got to gut supermajority cloture and impose simple majority cloture. And he did so. And then in 2017, um, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, now in the majority, said, okay, we're going to do the same thing for the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's where we're at. Neither party will trust the other party not to go nuclear whenever it considers it to be important enough. The thing about going nuclear though, is that you still have to have a majority to support your point of order. You still have to have a majority. And the Democrats' problem now in the 50-50 Senate is that they have a couple of Democrats who won't go along. Yeah. And that's putting us in uh, this limbo. Uh, with respect to the prospect for reform, um, at least for the time being. So,
1: here's the conclusion I came to after this conversation with Steve. The Senate has a moderating effect on legislation because moderates matter. And just like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski were two of the most important votes in the Senate in the Trump era, due to their willingness to buck the party line, Senators Manchin and Sinema have been elevated in importance in the new Democratic majority. And without a higher threshold of approval for legislation, the partisan base of the majority in the Senate would have greater power, just like the House. Meaning you'll see legislation passed that isn't reflective of the median American voter, but rather the partisan base. And this all leads us back to why I do this every week. Obstruction is only an effective tactic in a winner-take-all electoral environment like we have here. Reforms like rank-choice voting and proportional representation would allow us to vote for someone rather than against their opponent and require them to vote for something rather than against another party when they get into office. Something to chew on this week. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam, still lonely, lonely without a nickname, Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America, by the big Geno, the snake killer, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Daniel Sally. Adios.